Exodus 20, 22 through 24. It says, And Yahweh told Moshe, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. Today I'd like to develop a fuller understanding of verse 24. And I want to do that by beginning to look at text and Scripture that speak of the building of altars and the offering of animal sacrifices upon those altars. We're going to look at approved examples of this apart from there being a tabernacle and a temple, or tabernacle slash temple, at the location, and also apart from there being a Levite priest involved in the ceremony or in the sacrifice. Now, when you come to an understanding that Yahweh's law has not been abolished, and I'm firm on that understanding, and that Yeshua really meant what He said in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, and He wasn't just talking about the so-called moral law there. He was talking about the threefold division of law, if we want to say that, moral, civil, and ceremonial. That's taught there in the context. But if you come to that understanding, you will at one time or another encounter someone who will ask you, well, if you don't believe the law is done away with, what about the sacrifices? What about the sacrifices? I heard one person one time kind of snarkily say, well, before you know it, that brother will be offering up sacrifices. Well, they were right. <laughs> they were right. It's become a pattern in the Torah community to answer with something like this. Well, if you actually knew the Torah then you would know that I can't offer up an animal sacrifice because there's no temple and there's no Levite priesthood, so I can't do that. That's become the pattern response in our community. I've heard this spoken in some form or another over the last 25 years. It's been repeated so much that we've taken it for granted that it is true. It gets us off the hook quickly, and those that give the objection to us usually just accept it, and then they move on to the next objection. I want to suggest to you today that this answer that we give is at best a partial truth. It is also an oversimplification of the subject. This answer does not take into account everything that the Bible teaches on the subject. And we're whole Bible Christians. We need to be whole Bible Christians. And so we need to take not just Scripture alone, but all of Scripture and, and believe all of it, what it has to, to teach us. When we only use parts of the Bible to establish and build our beliefs, we come away with some truth, but that also means we come away with some falsehood as well. So, whenever I hear discussions on this topic, all of the approved examples of altars and sacrifices in the book of Genesis usually get swept under the rug and forgotten. They say that's irrelevant. They say with one big swoop, that was before the temple was built, that was before the Levite priesthood was active, so it's not relevant. And ever since the temple and the priesthood were established, we need them both to properly offer sacrifices on an altar. Now, what's interesting is, in our community, when it comes to a host of other laws, 
we're always pointing people back to the book of beginnings, the book of Bereshit, the origin, Genesis, we call it. That comes from the Greek. We always point them back. Well, look at Genesis. Yahweh's law didn't just become established or become real at the time of Moshe or at the time of Mount Sinai. We tell people it goes back to the book of Genesis. We take people to Genesis 2 to show them the Sabbath. We go to Genesis 7 to show the clean and the unclean designations with animals. Genesis 9 gives us the death penalty for murder and how we are to abstain from eating or drinking the blood of an animal. We go to Genesis 17 to show circumcision or maybe Genesis 31 to show ritual impurity laws. And I could give so many more examples. I have a debate chart I made one time with there are at least 20 examples where laws that we sometimes think originate in the books of Exodus to Deuteronomy actually are in the book of beginnings. This is sufficient to show that when we want to really prove our point about the law being the way of life for the people of Yahweh, we don't dismiss Genesis. We use Genesis. We say, look at Genesis. That is, unless we're talking about animal sacrifices. Then we don't want to look at Genesis. We say, no, that's irrelevant. Sweep it under the rug. It's just Genesis. We come up with an excuse. It's not relevant for us. You know what? I think, personally, I think that it's because we, we don't really want to be obedient here. That's what I think it stems from. We don't really want to be obedient because, listen, you, as well as I know, we're already ostracized enough by people that think that they know us but never come and ask us what we believe. We're already ostracized enough by outsiders out of our community. And if we slaughter an animal for a religious purpose, that's only going to add to our being made fun of. That's only going to make people call us a crazy fringe group even more. And we know that. So we kind of just steer clear of that teaching about animal sacrifices in Genesis. Yet a simple and honest reading of Genesis shows that men of Yahweh built altars to Yahweh in the name of Yahweh and then offered up sacrifices upon those altars and there was no temple, there was no tabernacle, there were no Levites and Yahweh was pleased with those offerings. In Genesis alone, there are about 13 uses of the word altar, whether you're in English or in Hebrew. Our English word altar stems from the Latin language, from the words, two words, altar, that means something high or a mound. And then there's probably also a link to the Latin word adolere, which has to do with burning in honor of. The Hebrew word for altar is mizbeach. Mizbeach. That means a raised mound. And that word is related to the Hebrew word zebach. And the word zebach has to do with the slaughter of a clean domestic animal for sacrifice. So what we have with the word altar, when you see the word altar in the Bible, what you have is an elevated place. Exodus 20, 24 tells us make it of earth or dirt. Make it out of earth or dirt. It's an elevated place on which appropriate animals are offered in sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, we haven't gotten to Exodus 20, 25 through 26 yet. That's the next two verses in our Torah portion right there about altars. But I'd like to read them here just to give you a little more context. We'll eventually get to them in a little bit more detail. But in verse 25, it says, If you make a stone altar for me 
You must not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. So the first command is altar of earth, build that. But then he says, if you want to make it out of stone, just don't chisel the stones. Don't sculpt the stones. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple. Then verse 26, you must not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. So this verse tells us that although altars were elevated places, they were not extremely high up. They were not so high up that you would have to go up by steps to the altar. Now, there may have been people that made altars like that, but here the commandment is not to make one like that. So the elevated place would be elevated, but not elevated to the degree that you couldn't reach it with your arms. So think of a, a mound of dirt, but not too high to reach with you standing beside it. That's what we get out of the word altar in the Bible in a nutshell. The very first mention of the word altar in Genesis is found two times. In Genesis 8 verse 20, where right after Noah and his family exited the ark, they'd been on that ark for a year with all them animals, he got off that ark and the first thing he did was build an altar to Yahweh. And he offered clean animals in the form of burnt offerings and peace offerings. And it says there, Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma and it satisfied him and he made Noah a promise. He said, I'll never again destroy the whole earth by means of a flood. But that's not the first mention of somebody offering an animal sacrifice. The first explicit mention of an animal sacrifice goes back to Genesis 4 verse 4 where it said that Abel, one of Adam and Eve's sons, offered the firstling of his flock with the fat portions thereof. That's Genesis 4 4. Now theories have been presented as to why Cain's offering, Abel's brother, was rejected and Abel's was accepted. The text says that Yahweh had regard for the offering of Abel, but not for the offering of Cain. One of the older theories about this says that Cain brought deficient produce rather than the first fruits. And the word first, when you think of first fruits, don't just think first in order, but think first in rank. So it's the first and the best. You pick out the one that you would really want to eat. <laughs> that one goes to the Creator, right? So Cain said, no, I'm going to keep the first and the best for me. I'm going to give Yahweh the deficient one. And therefore, Yahweh did not regard Cain's offering. That's an old theory on that. Genesis 4 verse 7 in the Septuagint text reads a little bit different than the Masoretic. It says, if you offer correctly, this is Yahweh speaking to Cain, if you offer correctly but do not divide correctly, have you not sinned? And that does sound like Cain made the offering, but he did not rightly divide his first and best from the rest of his produce. Now the main point here in Genesis 4 is that animal sacrifice goes back at least to the time just after the exit from the Garden of Eden. Abel somehow knew, we're not told in Genesis how he knew, but he somehow knew to offer the firstling of his flock and not just the animal, but the fat portions thereof from the animal. This would be the fat around the inner organs as well as the fatty tail, the liver and the kidneys. Leviticus 3, 9 through 11. We're commanded not to eat those portions, but those portions belong to the Creator. But the firstling animal itself that he offered, the firstling offering is an edible sacrifice. It's what's called a shelamim in Hebrew. It's a peace offering or a fellowship offering whereby you have fellowship with another believer or you have fellowship 
a meal of fellowship with the Creator in the sight of the Creator. And that detail is recorded in Deuteronomy 15, 19 through 20. How did Abel know? Have you ever thought about How did he know? How did he know? Well, somebody had to teach him. Either Yahweh directly told him, or Yahweh told Adam, and then Adam as Abel's father taught Abel the commandments. And he said, look, you're a keeper of the flock. When you have a firstborn male, you offer it in sacrifice to the Almighty and the fat portions thereof. And we know it was approved. We know it was righteous because Yahweh had regard for Abel's offering. Now, that means, this is interesting, in Hebrew, that word regard is sha'ah. It means Yahweh turned to it and gazed upon it in delight. Now, our Bible says, my Bible at least says, he had regard for it. I think KJV says he respected it. But literally in Hebrew, it means Yahweh turned to it and looked at it and smiled. But he, he didn't turn to Cain's offering. So, Genesis 4, Genesis 9 with Noah, we see men offering sacrifice. Now, we might say that the land that they offered sacrifice on was their dedicated temple, so to speak, to Yahweh. But there was no actual tabernacle or temple there at either sacrifice. There were no Levites there because the Levites hadn't been born yet. They hadn't come about yet. Okay. Now, if we move on from there to Genesis 12, in Genesis 12 we see that Abram built two altars in two different locations, and in both of them he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then in Genesis 13, verse 18, he builds another altar at a place where Yahweh visits him. Then in Genesis 22, this is a famous text, Abraham, this is after his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, he builds an altar upon a mountain named Mount Moriah. And he builds that altar because he thinks he's going to sacrifice his unique son, Isaac. And I'm not going to get into all of that theology about Yahweh asking to sacrifice his son. That's for a whole other teaching. But what I want to point out here is that Yahweh stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. He says, no, that's not really what I want. I just want to know that you'll love me and you'll do what I tell you to do. And then Abraham looks and over in the thicket, in the brush, what does he find? He finds a ram, a clean domestic animal. And he takes that ram and he offers it up as a burnt offering, an olah, completely consumed on the altar that he had made. Now, Abraham named that place. He named that place on Mount Moriah, Yahweh Yireh. And it means Yahweh will see to it or Yahweh will provide. So Abraham saw that ram in the thicket as Yahweh himself providing the ram for a sacrifice. It's a really beautiful story there. In Genesis 26, verse 25, Isaac, Abraham's son, builds an altar in Beersheba and he calls upon Yahweh's name. In Genesis 33, verse 20, Jacob builds an altar in a Canaanite city named Shechem and he named the place El Elohe Yisrael. And then in Genesis 35, Jacob builds another altar in Bethel. Now, what I've just given you here is just a brief overview of the altars and the offerings in the book of Genesis. There is no temple there is no Levite priesthood. Now, the man Melchizedek, who is called a priest of the Most High Elohim, he's mentioned in Genesis 14, but interestingly enough, there's no altar or sacrifice in that text in Genesis 14. What we have there is, Abraham went on this journey to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped. And 
he got spoils of war from the battle. And after that, he paid a tithe. He paid 10% of the spoils of war to the priest of the Most High Elohim named uh, Melchizedek. Whether that's a title or a name is, is debatable. There's no altar or sacrifice mentioned. However, it does say that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, which could refer to a grain offering, the minkah, or also a drink offering. Now, I do want to add here that there is a mention of a drink offering in Genesis 35, which I have there on the screen, verse 14 specifically. After Yahweh appears to Jacob, Jacob, and he changes his name to Israel, giving him a promise, Jacob Israel sets up this stone marker, just a stone, uncut stone, and he pours a drink offering out over the stone. And he also anoints, anoints the stone with oil. Drink offerings in Scripture were given of wine. Wine. And when I say wine, I'm talking about fermentation. I don't think there is any such thing as unfermented wine. That's called grape juice. <laughs> so wine is, is, is fer fermented grape juice, right? <laughs> so he pours out this wine on the rock as an expensive gift to the Creator. Much like the firstling or the best of the flock or the herd. So when we look at this in Genesis, why don't we lean on Genesis when it comes to altars and sacrifices? Why don't we tell people, well, Genesis 2 teaches the Sabbath and Genesis 4 teaches sacrifices. Why are we not consistent in that regard? I know a lot of people in the Torah community that are avid Sabbath keepers and they'll tell you to keep the Sabbath, but two chapters later, Abel offers the firstling of his flock. Here is a young man. Why are we not consistent in our argumentation there? It appears that the patriarchs in Genesis, the fathers in Genesis, understood what Exodus 20 verse 24 teaches. An altar of earth shalt thou make burnt offerings and peace offerings at the place says, plural, Yahweh causes His name to be memorialized or remembered. And then He says, I will come to you and bless you. It seems to me that the state in which we find ourselves in, how we live now as small communities over the earth, is more akin to the time period of Genesis than it is the time period of Leviticus, Numbers, or a established theocracy. It seems like we're more like they were in the book of Genesis. During the wilderness wanderings, the Israelite community had a movable tabernacle and a Levite or Aaronic priesthood. After they settled in the land, they had a more stationary tabernacle called the temple. And although there was always problems and sins among the tribes of Israel, they still had a theocracy, basically a government ruled by the law of, of Yahweh. We do not find ourselves in that state today. We have our small congregations scattered across the earth and we're more similar to just families of worshipers, kind of like Noah and his family or Abraham and his family or Jacob and Isaac and their families. Why then, let me ask you, why then would it be wrong to worship Yahweh the way that Noah worshipped Yahweh or the way that Abraham worshipped Yahweh? Was Yahweh at one time pleased with that worship and He delighted in that worship, but now the same thing that He once delighted in, He now calls an abomination? We make this point when we're talking about the food laws because in Leviticus 11, the food laws are called a holiness message. You shall be holy because I am holy, Yahweh says. 
and people when they go to 1 Timothy 4 to try to tell us the food laws have been overturned, there, whatever teaching is going on is called a doctrine of demons. So we tell people there's no way that something could go from holy unto Yahweh to a doctrine of demons. We don't serve a mighty one like that. At least we shouldn't. Our mighty one is consistent through all of Scripture. Right? So how could Noah worship Yahweh in one way and be accepted, but Matthew can't worship Yahweh in that same way? I can't do what Noah did when he got off that ark, according to a lot of people in our own community. I don't think that that's proper. I don't think that that's right. See, what we run into here is this. If we do not accept the practice of what Genesis teaches us in the area of altars and sacrifices, then we really don't have any business trying to show traditional Christians the Sabbath, tithes, clean and unclean animals, no eating blood from the book of Genesis. We don't have really any business going to Genesis. Let's just stay in the New Testament. Let me harp on tithes for a second here. Because according to various texts in Deuteronomy, the tithes, which tithing actually was only commanded on livestock and produce technically, but there were also teruma, monetary offerings, but the tithes and the monetary offerings were also to be brought to the place, singular, where Yahweh put His name. He said, when you come into the land, I'll have a place where I put my name and there, don't just bring your sacrifices of animals to me, but also bring your tithes to that place, whether it was Shiloh at the beginning or Jerusalem at a later time. What is said about the animal sacrifices being brought, is said about the tithes being brought, does that stop people from tithing or giving money? No, it doesn't stop people from doing that. What people do is they understand that in their current circumstance in which we live, we give tithes and offerings in the most appropriate way possible. In other words, we do the best that we have the ability to do. We do kind of like they did in the wilderness. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. And that's not a negative statement in Deuteronomy 12. There are some places in the Bible, in Proverbs, where it says people did what was right in their own eyes and in the book of Judges that are negative. The Deuteronomy text is not negative. It's positive. It's saying you've not yet come to the inheritance of the rest of the land. So right now, we're doing things how we see most appropriate. What's right in your own eyes doesn't mean you're negating what Yahweh says, but you're trying to take what Yahweh commands and do the best that you have the ability to do. I think we find ourselves in that same state even today on many things. But preachers will not balk at the tithes and the offerings. They won't balk. My granddaddy said that he heard a preacher one time say that the book of Malachi was the first book of the New Testament because he wanted to get, will a man rob God in the New Testament? <laughs> I said, granddaddy, he really taught that. He said, yes, sir, he taught that, grandson. I said, wow, I'd never heard that before. I've heard a lot of tithe messages growing up. We even sang songs as people marched around. People rob God when they don't give tithes and offerings. And we don't take up an offering in the assembly here. I believe in giving offerings. I believe that we can even tithe like Abraham did or like Jacob did in the book of Genesis. It's not to Levites, but there's a sense that we can devote 10% and, and that's fine. I'm not saying it's necessarily a commandment, but I think that we can do that and there doesn't have to be a Levite. We can still give to righteous ministries or righteous ministers and tithes in the Bible didn't just go to the ministers. They went to the widows and the poor 
and the orphans. And you don't have to give your tithe to a minister to let him give to the widows. You can take some of your tithe yourself and give it to the widows. And it also went, guess what? To you. That's a surprise to a lot of people. Deuteronomy 14 says part of the tithe you took to the feast and you partook of it yourself. And if the feast was too far away that you couldn't take all your flocks and your produce, you sold it there where you lived and you took the silver with you. When you got to the feast, you bought whatever your soul desired. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink. And you rejoiced before Yahweh. But He said, make sure to share it with the widow, the poor, the orphan. And don't forsake the Levite because he has no inheritance among you. So you could actually eat of your own tithe money. Preachers say, shh, Brother Matthew, don't teach that. <laughs> don't teach that, Brother Matthew. But this is what the Scriptures teach. Uh, one brother asked me one time, he visited on our Pentecost celebration, and he asked me about tithes. Because I had told him a day before that I wasn't his average Christian preacher. I don't have a problem with the word Christian. It means follower of Christ. But I told him I wasn't an average Christian preacher. Well, the next day he asked me about tithes, and when I answered him, I got through and he said, well, you really ain't an average Christian preacher, are you? <laughs> because I'm not up here wanting you to pad my pocket, right? Now, it's okay. Listen, there is nothing wrong with giving tithe or offering to a minister. There is a book called the Didache. Now, it is not Scripture, but it is a manual of Christian discipline for early Gentile Christians. And in that book that goes back maybe late 1st century, early 2nd century, it talks about how that in absence of a Levite, you give your first fruit offering to a prophet or a holy man. There's nothing wrong with giving a righteous minister offering for his spiritual labor that he puts in to, to the Word or a ministry. I'm just saying that it doesn't all go to him and that he shouldn't become rich off of it. If a man gets into the ministry to get rich, he's a false prophet. He's a false teacher if he's trying to make a profit off of, off of teaching the Scriptures. That's, that's not what it's for. No. Preachers don't balk at tithes and offerings. But boy, do they balk at altars and animal sacrifices. I've heard so many people bring up Genesis 14 where Abram paid a tithe to Melchizedek after they're told that tithes were under the law. They said, well, tithes were under the law. And they said, no, 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 no. The preacher says, they go back to Genesis. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And you know what? The preacher's right. The problem is they don't do the same for the altars and the sacrifices. A lack of consistency is the sign of a failed argument. You cannot say that it's okay to give a tithe or make a monetary contribution to an elder or a congregation and then turn around and say, but it's not okay to build an altar or offer a burnt offering or a peace offering on it. Once again, I'm not necessarily talking here about the asham, the guilt offering, or the sin offering. I'm talking about burnt offerings and peace offerings right now. You've got to either accept both or reject both. Really the only option is to accept both because if you reject both, you end up rejecting Holy Scripture and that brings on even bigger problems. We have got to get back, brothers and sisters, to the old paths that are mentioned in Jeremiah 6.16. Walk in the way of old, the ancient path. I heard a preacher the other day talk about the old paths. And he said, I see some of these younger preachers now that don't even wear a suit and a tie when they preach. And I'm thinking in my mind, 
Do you think Yeshua was in a suit and a tie when he stood up in Luke chapter 4 and quoted from the scroll of Isaiah? No, he wasn't in a suit and a tie. He was wearing a robe with sandals. He may not have had a bath that morning. (laughs) But he was quoting the prophet Isaiah from the scroll. A lot of these preachers, when they talk about the old pads, they're only going back to like the 1950s. That's not that old. That's only like 70 years ago. That's not the old pads. I heard a lot about Azusa Street when I was growing up because I grew up in Pentecostalism. That's only about 100, 125 years ago. It's not old enough. This is Jeremiah 6. And the prophet Jeremiah says, go back to the old paths. So the old paths have to be before Jeremiah. And what it is, is if you read the Torah, if you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you see several times in Deuteronomy, Yahweh will say, walk in my ways. Walk in my paths. Uh, In Genesis, it says, Noah walked with Elohim. And it says, Enoch walked with Elohim. That's the old paths. That's the old paths. Get back to how the old paths did it, how the old men did it. Enoch, Noah, Methuselah, Moses. We've got to get back to worshiping Yahweh, how He wants to be worshipped. And a big part of that is realizing that the promissory notes in my pocket aren't real wealth. Real wealth is livestock and produce and land and children in the Bible. That's, that's signs of wealth. Livestock, produce, land, and children. That's when, when you know Yahweh has blessed you tremendously. That's real wealth. And you know what? We show Yahweh we love Him when we take the best and the first of those things and we give it back over to Him because He's blessed us so much. Now, I will talk more about this in a soon future lesson. But clean domestic animals were created to be received. They were created to be received with thanksgiving for them who believe and know the truth. These animals are sanctified by the word of Elohim and by prayer. That does not mean that we have a license to treat animals cruelly, whether they are an unclean domestic animal or a clean domestic animal. Right? I'm not talking about that if one of them is trying to kill you that you can't stop it. I'm just saying we have no right to treat a clean or an unclean animal cruelly. But we do have the authority and the rule and dominion and we're commanded to subdue them, which I think carries the meaning of slaughtering, that is, clean animals, for meat or for sacrifice. All slaughter is not a sacrifice, by the way. Some slaughter is just common. And then some is is sacrificial or ceremonial. I've got chickens out in my backyard. I love my chickens. I have them for the purpose of eggs. I didn't buy them for the purpose of meat. I bought them for the purpose of eggs. It would be okay if I bought them to slaughter. That would be fine. But while they're not being used for meat, maybe one day they will. But while they're not being used for meat, you know what? I take care of them. I treat them good. I feed them and I water them. I give them them black oil sunflower seeds. And boy, they go crazy when I throw them out on the ground. They love them. And then they take care of me. Thankfully, the days are starting to get longer. I've noticed they've got some eggs in my nesting boxes today. I was, I was glad for that. But we take care of animals. Same with goats, sheep, cows that we might have. We take care of these domestic animals while they're with us. Even a cow that is raised for the slaughter should not be abused prior to the slaughter. But when slaughter day comes, we have to realize Yahweh created that cow to be used for meat. It is okay. And if we offer a firstling bullock 
for a peace offering or a male goat for a burnt offering, Yahweh is pleased with that gift that we bring to Him. I have had people bring me a gift of appreciation before. And this is kind of how I relate it because I know how it makes me feel. That's how it makes Yahweh feel when we bring Him a gift. People have brought me wine. I've even had one guy walk up in the drive at one time with beef summer sausage that he brought me. He said, hey, Brother Matthew, I brought you a gift of beef summer sausage. When we bring that food gift to each other, it's a sign of appreciation and friendship. And it's no different when we bring Yahweh the same. It's a sign of thanksgiving. It's something that cost, and we're giving it up to Yahweh just to show Him we're thankful for His provisions. Now, it's not always easy. When my blueberry bushes outside start making around May to June, and then big old plump blueberries pop up on the bushes, I sometimes wonder, I do, I'm flesh. I sometimes wonder, well, if I pick the best ones off and pick a mess of them and I give them away to Elder Jerry or I give them away to Brother TJ, will I have enough for me left over? I wonder that. I wonder that. But you know what? Yahweh always provides when we give to Him what He asks. Proverbs 3, 9-10 through 10 says, Honor Yahweh with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Isn't that beautiful? We give to Yahweh what He asks, which isn't that much. And then He causes us to have a surplus and an abundance. In the next lesson that I teach, which will be next week, next Sabbath, we will progress in our study and we'll move on from Genesis. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at approved examples of altars and animal sacrifices after the establishment of Israel in the Promised Land and after the establishment of the Levite priesthood in the Promised Land. There are examples, and these never get talked about in our community for the most part. There are examples of righteous men building altars in local areas apart from the temple and apart from the priesthood and making offerings without the aid of a priest. Now, I think I'm not doing this because I don't think Genesis is sufficient or good. I think Genesis is sufficient. It's Scripture too. I just don't want to leave any stone unturned. So I look forward to continuing this study journey with you. And may Yahweh cause us to meditate upon His commandments so that we'll have great success. We'll sing our song from Joshua and then we'll go to testimonies and prayer requests. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, but stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success.